Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. You're kind of stuck with that. But what, is, what was happening to me is I, 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 really, I really think sometimes that we start to think that faith should make our life easy. And the biblical examples are not that faith makes our life easy, but that faith allows us to overcome when life is not easy. And when life, when life really goes differently than you expect it to go. And so we've been looking at, at what I've called the gospel of Abraham, I'm not the first to call it this, but the gospel of Abraham, or the gospel according to Abraham, and we were looking at his life. Now, last two weeks, what we looked at specifically is when a line of demarcation was made in Abraham's life. It was in Genesis 15, verse 6, where it explains that God has made promises to Abraham, and the answer Abraham gives is Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, which means he came into a saving relationship with his God. To count as righteous means that Abraham is now in a right standing with God, not on the basis of his performance, but through his faith in the word of God. Now, the, the important phrase there, and the phrase that's so important for you personally, is he believed God. Not that he believed that there was a God, not that he believed about a God, but that he himself personally believed that the word of God was for him, that the promises of God were for him. This is the key. It's not faith in faith. It is and always has to be believing God for yourself. Now, from Genesis 15 on you begin to see that Abraham's life exhibits that faith. He, like you and me, faces choices. Will he meet the challenges of life with faith, or will he meet the challenges in his own strength? And so one of the passages that I want us to look at today is, is Genesis 18. Now I'm going to tell you, we're about to read a strange passage. Okay, it is a biblically strange passage, but it's one, of the, it, it, it's one of the most important passages for understanding what it means for you to live a life of faith in a world that's sinful and fallen. I like it when you read the scriptures out loud with me. Um, I don't think there are any hard names in this, so we'll read this together. Will you read God's word with me? Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 
And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. All right, so here, <laughs> here's this strange passage. Let me see, did I go too far? Oh, yeah, so how did I do that? Okay, so here's this strange passage. So I didn't give you the first part because it's a whole lot of reading, but I'm going to tell you the first part. So the far, first part is Abraham's having his life, and he's going about his life pretty well. He's in his tent, and all of a sudden God interrupts his comfort. So God shows up. Now, here's how he shows up. Two angels and the Lord himself. This is what is called a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord. Jesus shows up at Abraham's tent. That's basically what happens. And so they come not in the form of angels, not in the form of you know, the glory of God. They come veiled in human form. This is, you understand, this is like a precursor. This is you looking into what's going to happen when Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Mary. And so here Jesus shows up, and two angels come with him. They come, and they begin to speak to Abraham. And Abraham is now talking face to face with the Lord, but the Lord has veiled his glory. And so the Lord is speaking to Abraham and, and Abraham is speaking to the Lord. Now, this is one of the ways that you must understand that prayer is supposed to be a two-way dialogue. It is never just you giving your list of demand, I mean, requests uh, to the Lord. It is supposed to be a back and forth between you and the Lord. But here is what's so interesting here is something more than prayer is taking place. And we see it in this dialogue between the Lord and Abraham. Now, what this is called is intercession. And what Abraham is, is he is a mediator between the people who are unrighteous and the righteous God. And this mediation is what is going on. And if, if I can just explain it to you, this is what we read is one of the first and it's the longest prayer in this early part of Scripture. And it is, a, it is a conversation that's happening between Abraham and the Lord. And so what Abraham is performing is the function of a priest. This is the true function of the priest. Now, 
If you want to understand the role, a real role of a biblical priest is a priest is required to act as a mediator. He is the one who represents God to God's subjects, and in return, he represents the subjects to God himself. The priest acts as an ambassador. You could say, in a way, that the priest acts as a bridge so that there's a connection between God and his people and his people and God. So the priest is a chosen vehicle through whom the Lord has chosen to serve the people and also to represent the Lord. Mediating is really what Abraham is doing here in this strange passage. He is a bridge between people and God and God and people. So what we see, and this, is, this whole picture of priesthood is so essential because what it's saying here, and what you and I need to know, is that you and I cannot relate to God without a mediator. Now, Abraham steps into this role as being the first priest. There's no, other, there's no other example of a priesthood mediator before Abraham does this. Now, you'll see later that Moses steps into that place, and some of the prophets even step into that place. But Abraham's the first one who mediates between God and the people. And guess what? This, this is so important to understand. Abraham doesn't take up this role without being invited into the role. Did you not hear as we read? I know I'm but dust, he says, over and over again. And I'm speaking to God. Do you understand what he's saying there? I can't believe I'm having this conversation. And and he's like, I think I'm risking more than I realize. So in Genesis 18, we've seen that I've told you about these three people. They show up at the tent. Two of them are angelic beings. And one is the Lord himself. But what he explains, why has he come? And the, the, the explanation given by the Lord is, I've come to judge the people of the plains. So these are the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are these areas that we know of as Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's all of the people of the plains. And what the Lord says is he says, I've heard their outcry. Now, one of the books that has really helped me in my study here is a a new uh, translation with commentary on Genesis by a a scholar by the name of Robert Alter. And what he says is this word outcry in Hebrew has very specific technical meaning. It's the Lord saying, I have heard the cries of those who are oppressed and have no voice. Come on, this is pretty good. The Lord himself leaves heaven and the glory of heaven. He comes in human form. Why does he come? He comes because people who have no voice are crying to him and they are oppressed. Basically, what this word outcry is, it is the cry of victims. But not just any victim. It's the cry of victims of oppression cruelty, and injustice. So what we see here is we start to see why you can have faith in God. Have you not? 
in your life known powerlessness? Have you not in your life had to do things or, or be related to people or, or be in, in, in work relations or whatever it might be where there's cruelty, where there's oppression, where there's injustice? And to feel like nobody hears me. Nobody cares. I mean, some of us people do care, but we still like self-pity so much that we say, you know, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to eat some dirt kind of thing. You know, but, for, but most of us, one of the greatest fears in our life, one of the biggest needs in our life is to not feel powerless, to have some sense that our life has a measure at least of self-determination. And so every time you think you are abandoned, remember the Lord cared about the people of the plains so much that he came in human form to deal justly with those who had dealt unjustly. So here we have an important revelation of God's character. You see, what he's saying here is, I cannot and I will not leave injustice unpunished. And so he hears and he responds to the outcry. I don't a lot of times when people are talking about their view of God, it's not a biblical view of God, and it is not God's revelation of himself. I've often had people you know, say to me as a pastor, go, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I believe in a God of love. I believe in a God of mercy. But don't you think that if there are outcries in a world and outcries of victims of oppression, victims of injustice, Don't you want a God of judgment who will come and judge against the injustice? If he's just a God of love in that way, he's not really very loving because his hands are tied to deal with injustice. I I don't know about you, but I have sometimes prayed, God, would you smite this boss of mine (laughs) with thine holy hand grenade? I mean, in a sense, what kind of just God would there be if he's insensitive to the outcry of the oppressed? And so here is is our God showing up at, at Abraham's tent. And he explains to the prophet Ezekiel what he's doing in these days. Here's what he says. This is verse 49 of Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. See, if God is to be merciful, then he must judge injustice. That's what the scripture teaches. Some of us, I love people's lack of understanding of just the meaning of certain words. You know, if you ever say, I demand grace, you don't understand grace. (laughs) If you ever say, I deserve mercy, you're not talking about mercy. You're talking about justice. If anything in your life is about what you deserve, then it's the wages of what you've done. Any time that you begin to say, I have a demand that you do this, you're not asking for grace. 
you're demanding your salary. If you want grace, it is always because you understand, like Abraham, I am just dust and failure. And I need grace because I don't deserve what I need. I need mercy. This is the beauty of the revelation of God here. You see, most of us live in a world where there's either justice or injustice. God created a whole new realm for us, a realm that is never injustice and is never Him acting unjustly. But He created a realm in which you can relate to Him, you can rely on Him, and you can, you can begin to ask of Him on the basis of something that is basically non-justice. It's called grace, and it's called mercy. And the awesome thing about our God is because He is just, He can also withhold the justice aspect so that He can be gracious to you and so that He can be merciful to you. This revelation of God, this revelation of our Lord Jesus to Abraham says this, God is far more disposed to save than He is to judge Come on, that's really good. He is far more disposed to save than he ever is to judge. So this is interesting how the Lord has this dialogue with Abraham. Now, one of the reasons I want to go through this a little bit with you is because I believe that if you'll start listening in your spirit, you will hear that the Lord is speaking to you. And what happens is he speaks to us in an accommodating way. In other words, if there's a certain way that communicates to you, that's how God communicates. If there's a certain way that doesn't communicate with you, then God doesn't communicate that way. But he has this amazing way of communicating and you knowing that it's God. So here's one of the interesting things. As he invites this mediation, he invites this intercession of Abraham. He wants Abraham to have a role in what he's about to do. And so he says this out loud. He goes, shall I hide what I'm about to do? Shall I hide it from Abraham? Now, has a friend ever done to you said, you know, I know something, but I really shouldn't share it with you? (laughs) Well, you know they're going to share it, right? I mean, you may have to press them a little bit. And like, you're not going to leave till you tell me what you know. But the Lord is getting, you see, he's piquing Abraham's curiosity. Shall I hide this or shall I share this? I, I don't know about you, but if you'll listen to this, you'll realize why you should fall in love with God. Because his communication is so skillful to get at the heart of things. So he sends the other two away. And he's alone with Abraham. And he invites Abraham into this discussion. And I want to tell you that what follows and what we read together begins to make the point that our infinite God has chosen that your intervention, just like Abraham's intervention, is essential for the carrying out of his plans. Many of you have failed to step into the role that you are supposed to have as someone who's intervening for the people you care about. 
Abraham is asked to intervene. And God accommodates Abraham to be this important person who intervenes for the people of the plains. So Abraham approaches God, and, and, and it's, it's interesting because he's been standing in the presence of God, but then it says he went from standing before the Lord, he approaches the Lord. If you listen to the language here, it's like the, it's like the language of the court. What does the lawyer do? May I approach your honor? So what he's doing is the Lord is saying, approach and state your case. Come and plead your case. If part of your prayer arsenal is not to learn how to plead the case, then your prayers are lacking. Because God loves it when you begin to state the case of why he should do something. You want healing in your life? State the case. You want to see your family saved? State the case. You want to see the hurricane go out into the Atlantic Ocean? State your case. You understand the reason we cancel the 1030 services? Because when we cancel services, storms don't ever come our way. You look at it. I won't go there. All right, so here, here's the case. All right, here's what happens. This is a powerful. He brings his plea to the court of God. And he, he stands before the Lord as a lawyer. And so he begins to make an appeal. Now, this is, this is, so, this is part of what makes this so unusual. He asked God to spare everyone in Sodom. Now, he has family in Sodom. He has Lot. Lot's wife, those two, his, you know, his family. But he doesn't ask, just spare the family. He doesn't say, God, spare my family and wipe those other suckers out. He doesn't do that. One of the commentators said this. This is one of the first times, and it is actually the only time in the Old Testament where there is intercession that isn't for the family only. Abraham is the only one who pleads for Sodom. He pleads for these Canaanites. He pleads for people who actually are kind of enemies to him. Every other intercession is only for the people of God and only for their own family. So here's what he is doing as he makes his plea. Now, this part is a little deep. We, I know it's early Sunday morning. There's a hurricane or now what's a tropical storm or whatever. Soon it'll just be a depression. But uh, um, as we do this together, would you go theologically with me? Because what I'm about to share with you, I missed for about 62 years of my life. And I, I, as I see it now, I can't unsee it, but I love you to see it. So here's, here's what Abraham is doing. He's not just saying, I wish you would do this. What he starts to do is he goes deep into the very nature of God. He begins to do what, what one writer called a theological exploration. He comes as a defense attorney for the entire region, for all the people and cities of the plain. And, and he does it like a lawyer. If, if you've ever watched, you know, I like watching court shows on TV, and the lawyer, when he comes, he assumes the law and he assumes the judge knows the law. You don't ever see a lawyer come up and say, 
you know, my, my client is guilty, but this law is a bad law. No, he comes to prove the innocence or the acquittal of the client on the basis of the truthfulness of the law. And this is what, this is what Abraham does. He comes and he starts and he says, let's assume that you are a just God. And he says it this way, even ask God a question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You understand, he's not saying, do, he's not asking God to operate apart from his nature. He's saying, God, I'm appealing to your nature. I know that you're just, and I'm going to make my appeal on the basis of your justice. And here is the appeal that he makes. Will you not, and, he, and the word translated in English is, will you not spare? But the Hebrew word is literally the word for forgive. Will you not forgive? And he says it this way, will you not forgive the many who are unrighteous for the sake of the righteous few? See, many of us have missed Abraham's because we get caught up in what Sodom was and what Gomorrah was and what the sins were all about. And we miss what Abraham is saying. Do you understand? This is the gospel according to Abraham. No one else can say this. See, normally, think about it. What's the normal thing? The normal thing is the unrighteousness in the city defiles the city. No matter how many righteous people there are, you say it's sin city if it's majority unrighteous. I mean, nobody calls Las Vegas righteous city. <laughs> I grew up near New Orleans, Louisiana. Nobody ever called New Orleans a righteous city. They call it righteously wicked, but they never, they never called it righteous. And so what you see is the normal thing is the many unrighteous defile the righteous. Think about this for a minute. Apart from Jesus, if you touch a leper, you become unclean just as the leper is unclean. But when Jesus touched the leper, he didn't become unclean. The leper became healed. This is, this is the argument here that Abraham is making. And no one else has ever made this argument up to this point. Here's what he's saying. I want you to save these people because of your character, not contrary to your character. And here's what Abraham is saying. Is our record, is our record all that you will go on? See, this is a scary question. Because if, if it's your record that God is going on, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so you begin to realize Abraham is pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah, but truthfully, friends, he's making his appeal for you. This is your defense. God, in your righteousness, in your judgment, will you destroy the righteous because of the many unrighteous. And so Abraham asked this question, could the righteousness of someone save the unrighteousness of the many? What a question. You see, and he's arguing this as a lawyer before the very throne of God. Now, obviously in the scripture, there's always a balance between individual responsibility 
and there's a balance between corporate responsibility. Now, if you are primarily American or Western culture person, the tendency is that we only see individual responsibility. But that truthfully is a very new philosophy. It has only been around for a few hundred years. Most of the world sees a very corporate responsibility. That's why the idea of family sin and generational sin is a collective guilt. In other words, you are so tied to what has gone on in the past that you can't escape it. And most of the world doesn't see you as belonging to yourself. Most of the world thinks you belong to your family. And so the idea that Abraham is doing is a very traditional idea, but he's saying, is there a way, is there a way, oh God, that someone else's righteousness could cover me? Is there a way? And this is a fantastic question. He's saying, I am affected not only by my own sins, but the sins of the past and the generations before me. Can it not also be that a record of righteousness can stand in, it, in my place and cover me? And he knows that God is so disposed to saving people far more than he is to punishing people. And so Abraham is pleading and interceding in that way. So let me just put it again this way. Abraham says, do I have to stand on my own record? Could the righteous few cover the unrighteous many? But he gets all the way to 10. Did you notice that in the story? He gets all the way to 10, and then he stops. Here's, here's what's going on there. If you, it's an unfinished prayer. In a way, it's an unfinished symphony of prayer. He's, he, he's not saying what you and I think he ought to say. Don't you think he ought to say, would you save the city for one? Just one. You see, he learned in this and he discovered an incredible theological principle. But you must understand what he learned in that moment. He didn't even have one righteous person. Now you say, well, what about Lot? Well, Lot was relatively righteous. <laughs> Many of us like to say, at least I'm not like so-and-so. But even Lot's relative righteousness was nothing more than filthy rags. So even Lot could not cover the sins of the city. So here we, here we see something interesting. He did stop at 10 for one other reason. The number 10 represents the smallest number to highlight the fact that even a very small number of innocent men is more important in God's sight than a majority of sinners and is sufficient to stem the judgment. Can I, I'm working on two kind of two parallel lines with you. On the one hand, I'm wanting you to see Abraham was not sufficient to pray this prayer. Abraham was not great enough of a priest to pray this prayer. But at the same time, I want you to see that God is saying, I am so disposed to salvation that if you and a group like you will start praying for the city, if you'll pray for the region, if you'll pray for the country, that small group of ten can turn the tide. 
Are you tracking with me in this? I mean, I know it's kind of theological. I mean, I know I'm a Bible nerd. I get it. But will you go with me here? Do you see how the gospel was right there with Abraham? I, truthfully, if I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial. I wish those who were biological sons and daughters of Abraham would see this passage as clearly as it is given. That you have to have a righteous one cover you. That no matter how observant you become, you're never righteousness, righteous enough to cover your own unrighteousness nor the unrighteousness of your family. So here we have Abraham. Why does he stop at 10? Because he's not great enough a high priest even to save Sodom. Our high priest (laughs) didn't simply pray for those that weren't his family. Our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, prayed for those that were killing him while they were killing him. Do you not remember on the cross when Jesus, our high priest, being lifted up as our sacrifice, as our representative, he said about those who were doing that death to him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We see Abraham here. He's clearly risking his life for those he's trying to save. But Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life for those he was saving. Listen in Hebrews 7.25. You want to read it with me? You see it up there? Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. So the answer, friends, The answer to Abraham's prayer, the finished symphony of his prayer, is not that we need ten, we just need one. But it has to be the right one. It has to be a high priest who truly meets our needs. In other words, only Jesus can stand there and say, you can find no fault in me. How do I know that? Because when he went into death, death couldn't hold him. And on the third day, he rose again. You see, if there had been fault, if there had been a warrant against him, he could not have escaped death. I've said it to you again. I mean, some of you are just like me. I've got warrants in Nyack, in New York City. (laughs) They're all traffic violations or parking violations. And yes, I need to pay them off. But uh, every time I get the bill, I just get angrier and angrier. And if I can't even park right, how many warrants are there against my soul? And yet when Jesus, being the representative, being the righteous one for the unrighteous, he was holy, he was blameless, he was pure, he was set apart from sinners, and he himself was above the heavens. See, here's what you begin to see, and this is where faith starts to come in. Because you are in Christ, you are treated as Christ. Because you are in Christ, you are loved as Christ. And there's something about a true priest, a true intercessor, and only Jesus fulfilled this, but a true priestly intercessor fears no one and disdains no one at the same time. 
You start to see a little bit of this in Abraham because though he is fearful to stand before the holy God as an unholy man of dust and sin, yet he, he does not fear because he wants to see Sodom saved. And though he knows that these residents of the plains, that they are wicked people who have oppressed and who have acted abominably, the Scripture says, Yet he does not disdain them. You understand, you cannot begin to really be a priest operating in prayer for your family, for yourself, for your community, if at the same time you think yourself better than others. We had a fascinating experience in Africa. Um, We took on a big assignment to go and, and, and to bring teaching on prayer and teaching on emotional healing and all these things to Africa, to Uganda after the Civil War had ended that had gone on for 20 years. And we were in the northern part of Uganda where the Civil War had raged the worst. And I was teaching on emotional healing. The last day I taught on forgiveness. And I asked them to write down all the people they needed to forgive. And I asked them that they would come and they would put the paper up on the the platform like it was an altar and tear the paper up. And there were many, many hundreds of people there in that that, uh, teaching. And they all came forward and they put, and there were different tribes who had been at war with each other for years and years. And there was a time of testimony and there was a woman from this one tribe. She was one of the most elegant African women I've ever seen. So dressed up. Everything in place. Everything. She just looked perfect. But she got up and she said, I, I have felt called all my life to be an intercessor, someone who intercedes for my nation. But today I've realized I'm the problem. I have hate in my heart. I have bitterness in my heart. I, I, I am the problem, she says. And she says to the other tribe, I have hated you. I've hated the sound of your voice. I've hated your accent. I've hated your vocabulary. I've hated you because you killed my husband. Now, there was probably one person who killed her husband, but you see the collective guilt? She didn't say, this person killed my husband. She said, your tribe killed my husband. But she said, today I have forgiven you. Today I have chosen to forgive you, and because I forgive you, I love you. And the whole place broke. People began to have that, that, uh, that sound that comes deep from within, uh, that, that, that uncontrollable kind of sound, a breakthrough. And uh, one of the tribes, the tribe that had, had been you know, at the forefront of the war, they began to sing a song of repentance. I didn't understand their language, but I understood the spirit of what was going on. And it was one of the most beautiful sounds I've ever heard in my life. You understand, you cannot intercede for people you feel superior to. You cannot intercede for people you resent, for people you disdain. You cannot be a priest for someone you think you're better than. Are you tracking with me in this? A true intercessor fears no one and disdains no one. So here's what I'm saying to you. If you just have Abraham as your example, his example will crush you. Because you can't be him. 
If you said, and I've had people say to me, oh, Jesus is such a great example. He's such a great teacher. Let me just tell you, if Jesus is your example, you will be crushed by Jesus because you will never live up to Jesus. But you see, if Jesus is truly your high priest, then you have to accept a spiritual condition within you that exists, that you are dust and sin, that you are are an object of humiliation. And so there has to come from you a humility. But if you will accept that he is truly your high priest, then it will be a mix of humility and confidence within you. You will fear no one, but you will disdain no one. Here's what Abraham's words teach me. He was so flawed that he was humbled. And he was better than no one, not even the Sodomites, not even those of Gomorrah, not even those of the plains who were worthy of judgment. But when you accept Jesus as your great high priest, then you fear no one and you fear nothing. I'm asking you today to take hold of this great high priest, Jesus. I'm asking you to become a priestly person. Would you say that with me? A priestly person. Why can I say that to you? Well, in Hebrews 7.23, it says, Now there have been many of those priests since death who prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And then in Revelation 1, 6, it says this, if Jesus is your high priest, then here's what John records. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I am not any of those things by performance. I'm not even as good a priest as Abraham, and he failed. But if I hold on to my high priest, who has a permanent priesthood, then by faith I receive his designation of my life. And he says, the designation of your life is you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Not because you perform, but because he performed. Not because we are the many righteous. We're not. But because the one was righteous and his righteousness is our record now. We are God's special possession and it is permanent i'm asking you become a priestly person fear no one and disdain no one in jesus name will you stand with me as we close this morning there's so many things that i want to say But just as Pastor Mike was closing at the end, I just kept hearing the words of the scripture that say that when you are in Christ, you are seen as Christ. And so we, apart from him, are failures, but when we are in him, 
we can intercede and we can step into our rightful position and where we belong. And I love this passage because I feel like it, I love that the Lord invites Abraham into this. His desire is for us to be in relationship with him, to partner with him. And I was, I was thinking about times in my life, people that I respect, people that I just admire, when they ask me to be a part of what they're doing, oh, the honor that I feel. But I can't do it on my own. I can only do it when I step up into my rightful place. And when I am in Christ, I am seen as Christ. And, and he's asking me to be a part of what he's doing, to intercede, to love the people that he loves, to stand in the gap for those that need somebody to pray for them, to be with them, to be his representation, his hands and feet on this earth. But what this story shows us is that we can't do that apart from him. We will never be able to muster up enough love and affection for this world on our own. But when you are in Christ, you are seen as Christ. And you get to partner with Him. You get to be in relationship with Him. You get to carry the burden with Him, but not apart from Him, in Him. So let's pray together. Father, your plans, they just blow my mind. That you would come to this earth in human form. Because you love us so much that you want to be in relationship with us. That you want us to represent you on this earth so that everyone would come to know you. And you never leave us alone. sent us your Holy Spirit to come and to dwell in us, to give us power. Your Holy Spirit that always intercedes, Father, we get to step into that when we are in you. And so we say that we want to be a people who look like, who sound like, who act like, who love like, who intercede like, who pray for just like Christ. can't do this without you. We will fail time and time again. So Father, I pray for a fresh outpouring of your spirit, a fresh passion for your people, for all people, for all places. Father, this, this idea of, of needing affection for the people you serve, Lord, it's one that even the world sees. Lord, even the military tells their people that they need to have some kind of affection for the people that they're serving. It's embedded in who we are. And so today we say that we want to be a people who step up into our rightful place in Christ to love this entire world, to intercede so that all the world would come to know you. And Lord, we do pray uh, your protection over everyone that might be affected by this hurricane, but we do say in the name and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, we tell it to go to wherever you send it. Lord, we know that in you we have this authority that we could even tell the skies and the wind and the rain to go in the name of Jesus. 
Father, we just thank you for your great plans, for who you are.